Okay. Um, so 2010, 2011, I'm, I'm working my way into the draft process. At that point, I felt that I had deficiencies from a movement standpoint. I felt that I wasn't moving quick enough in the pocket. Um, my arm motion wasn't fast enough. And in this new wave, this new age of offense where I was going to have to play from the gun and more RPO and bubbles and quicks and things that we didn't necessarily do a lot of at Iowa, I was going to have to play quicker in the pocket. So like that was kind of my mindset going into the draft process. And so I started to try to you know, pull back every curtain that I could. And I was able to cross paths with Tom Martinez, who has since passed, but was Tom Brady's throwing coach since he was 12. So he was, you know, he knew Tom, he knew the family. I think he coached Tom's sister in softball and, and just had helped Tom build his motion up to that point. And so he was the first person that gave me this, like, he started talking about sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse. He was talking biomechanics. I had never really gotten into that world or thought too much about how I threw a football before. I just kind of spun it. Like it just came natural. And, and so when I got to that point, then I started to go like real deep into the analyzation of the throwing motion. Like I really wanted to look at it. I wanted to analyze it. I wanted to understand it more. And that began my journey. From that point on, I was starting to notice like little breakdown in my body that was just, you know, an, an accumulation of things, pulling muscles I had never pulled. Um, back spasms were always an issue for me. I would have a lot of back spasms that would have back issues since I was young. That was something that I was, that that had been a a career long thing, not just in the NFL draft process. That was from high school and it was working its way through until this point I was in the NFL. And so it was now like, okay, I'm looking for things to like heal me a little bit. I had gotten a a pretty intense car accident in 2009, Mm. right before the season, I flipped my car. And I did some damage to my left side that like just throughout the accumulating years, for some reason I had this left shoulder that was like locked up and I had torn my right AC joint. So, you know, you're going through these battles and these scars of playing football. I have an MCL, I've got an ankle, I got all this stuff. And then on top of that, you had the, you had the the famous tightrope ankle. I had the tightrope and I also had a, you know, an MCL on my left knee that I, that I played through. It was in the Iowa state game in, in, in 09. Um, I just, w- just ran through that one. And then I get the car accident and it's like, by the time I got to that, you know, second year in the NFL, like the injuries and the inefficiency had forced me to ask questions. So now I'm starting to look for, I was always into Olympic lifting. I loved it. I thought, you know, this was, this was the way it, it 2015, I was coaching a high school down in um, Jacksonville and I was part of teaching them the Olympic lifting. Like that's, that's where I was. I was. The, one of the first books I got into was Kelly Surrett's Supple Leopard. So I got into Supple Leopard at the same time. That was sort of my like Western lens that I was looking at, but I was also looking in the Eastern world and I was, you know, back into martial arts. I was looking at the Shaolin monks because they're on YouTube, just flipping around, flying around. I'm like, what are they doing? I was just in this very curious mode when it came to human movement. It was a new thing for me. So I just kept going and kept going with it. And I was reading all these books on, Eastern art, Western art, looking into the gymnastics world, looking into the strict body strength, looking into more into the Olympic lifting and powerlifting world, trying using that supple leopard book as a lens, but also getting some great concepts from Kelly about torque, torque principles that I was able to help build off of. Once I finally met Gary and Gilly, and that's kind of where my go to story starts is very late in the Gilly. I don't know. Yeah, so Gary and Gilly. So Gilly Jose Bosch is his name. His middle name is Guillermo, so we called him Coach Gilly. That was kind of his nickname growing up. 
So Gilly is the founder of Goda. Gary Scheffler, my business partner now, is the sort of the first gym, the first strength coach that Gilly went to and kind of pitched this concept to and got Gary to give him enough of his ear. And through a few years of trial and error and kind of talking back and forth, Gary then really adopted this, what soon to be, you know, it became the go to system. I was along my journey, you know, 2017, 2018, the go to journey for them really kind of gets started like 2016, 2017, I believe. Um, they start to kind of look at it like, hey, we might have something here, but there's a you know predate to that for Gilly as far as him finding the evidence that he then brought to Gary. 2019 is when I come into Gota. So I come into Gota, 2019. I've been looking around. I found this book um, one night searching Amazon, looking for just biomechanical books and, and anything that I could get my hands on. There was a book called Muscles and Meridians by Philip Beach. And I picked up that book for some reason, something told me to pick it up and I bought it. And he talked about spinal engine. He talked about the movement of the facet joints. He just, he gave me and pulled back a layer, another layer. So I buy spinal engine. So I start to look at who's, you know, that's very different than what we were taught, right? Core brace, core brace. And so I started to look at like Friette's laws of motion with the spine. I started looking at Sergey Grakovetsky's work with the spinal engine and what Philip Beach was doing with these full scale sort of, you know, integrated concepts to how the muscles are sewn around the skeleton and how it's designed in the embryological perspective. So what we're literally developing like in the embryo is a repetitive process that Philip Beach had kind of spent time studying. So all of this stuff was like, whoa, this is super new. Who else is talking about spinal engine, right? Like who else is talking about this in the space? Because like I came from, you know, core brace world. I came from, you know, you know, we lock our core, we don't move it. So that was like the first like piece of evidence that made me go look further. Once I found Gilly and Gary and they were talking about the spinal engine and this movement, the first thing that jumped off the page was that they were using slow motion video. So me being a quarterback watching tape, I'm like, oh, this is, this is interesting. I'll spend more time looking at this. And then I started the conversations with Gilly and Gilly was really the first coach that didn't tell me what to think, just told me where to look. And he said, I want you to go look at all of the non-contact injuries. Just get as many non-contact ACLs, Achilles, um, hyperextensions, ankle rolls that you can get. Look at those on tape and then start to look at the deadlift, the Olympic lift. Look at how you're using your foot basically in an Olympic lift, in a deadlift, in a power lift scenario, and then look at the injuries. And I was like, man, they're really close. Like they, they look exactly the same. I can't find one that doesn't look like this. And then at the same time, he was showing me like, okay, look at these durable humans. Like look at these guys that are able to, in an environment where you know you're probably gonna get hurt because you got bodies flying around you, they're able to push 10, 12, maybe 15 years in a competitive contact sport and have relatively low injury numbers compared to the rest of the population. And what he started to show me was this thing called GOTA. And GOTA stands for the greatest of all time actions. So what he did or what his question was is how does a body travel through space for a lifetime and never get hurt for no apparent reason, right? Gilly was a person who he had wrecked his back at three levels. So he was a candidate for a cage. Like they were going to cage Gilly's lumbar spine because he had three levels of his lumbar that degenerated. He threw out one at a time 
and they all blew out, and he was like just L1, at this one L two, L three. Yeah, like a L one, L two, L three situation where he's like bone on bone. It's a bad situation. They might have to cage you. He's going to all the best doctors, all the best orthos. He's not getting the information. You know, he can't wrestle with his kids on the ground. Like very emotional time for him. He gets a break when he finds Pete Agoscu. So Pete Agoscu, the Agoscu method, was really his first break into a little bit of pain-free movement. And along the way of Gilly trying to find out how he gets pain-free, he's learning things, right? He's learning, he's picking up on stuff, and he's, you know, a very circular thinker, looking at the whole picture, came from the golf world. So the golf world adopted slow motion decades before anybody else really did. And tennis so did too, right? tennis did too, like these specialized sports really did. So he was always like, well, let's just get a camera on this thing. And his thought process was like, Michael Jordan's flying around every night dunking. I'm the same age as him. I sneeze and my back blows out. What's the difference? Like what's going on? What, is there something that, is there a piece Besides of information? genetics too though, how did they take yeah. that? Sorry. Yeah, like just bigger questions though. But the question was posed, you know, how does a body travel through space for a lifetime and never get hurt for no apparent reason? Because when he's looking at the musculoskeletal system, he's saying, okay, this musculoskeletal system, we know for in fact, we know for a fact that it has to work through this walking cycle thousands of times a day, right? And then you expand that, you extrapolate that over a lifespan. That's a lot of walking. That's a lot of reps. So already implied that there's got to be some sort of longevity to this musculoskeletal system. If it's meant to take that cycle thousands of times a day over a lifetime, well, it can't be breaking down. We need it. You could take the same analogy to the other systems of the body. If we look at the other systems of the body, we've diagnosed, we've cataloged them as integrated systems that move in a cycle, that have phases that move the cycle, and then inside of that cycle, they're moving something. Cardiovascular system, right? We know the integrated, I tell you the cardiovascular system, you can see the heart, you see the veins, what's it moving? The blood, okay. Digestive system, I say digestive system, you can picture the whole track, what's it moving? The food. Respiratory. We could go on and on, right? There's an integrated cycle. It's got phases. It's moving something. And when we go to treat and diagnose that system, as a doctor would, they treat it as such an isol uh, or an integrated system that's working on a cycle. And they're trying to find the harmony or the the sort of the tempo and the rhythm to that cycle. There's a certain way your healthy blood pressure, if you will. Gilly was essentially saying that's what we should do with the musculoskeletal system, right? What's its cycle? What's the cycle that the musculoskeletal system has to perform thousands of times a day? What is it moving through its system thousands of times a day? And if we can get an idea of how that's supposed to go down, then we have an idea of what the longevity should look like. So it kind of really starts with the walk. And what we're trying to prove to people through this evidence of not only anatomical, but slow motion video evidence that we now have available to us. This is a big part of what makes GOTA different and why GOTA is only available or could be possible now. We've all got these iPads and these iPhones in our hands, right? We have this never ending library of video that's getting clearer and clearer with HD. We can now really look at movement like we never, you couldn't look at movement like this in the 90s. You couldn't even look at movement like this in the 2000s, right? You couldn't really just actually examine slow motion like that unless you were part of an organization or somebody that had a lot of money. So now it's just in our palms. So Gilly takes that concept and says like, is there a default? Is there an operating system here? And what we're trying to show with Goda is that yes, it is. And it's linked to that walk. We are designed to move forward through space, right? We are built, everything is leading back to that walking cycle. And like a volume dial 
or like a light dimmer, that walking that we see and it's nice and slow and it's methodical, you can turn it up. So the walk becomes the jog, becomes the run, becomes the throw, the swing, the cut, the juke, the jump. And so all these things that we see as separate movements, when we start with the walk and we start to see how it evolves to a run or a jog or a throw or a swing, we'll see the same behaviors, the same sort of biomarkers, if you will, the same trademarks show up in those movements. And what Gilly was saying is that if there is a cycle that's going to be going forward through space all the time, then we'll see that reflected in the anatomy. And then through that, we'll know based off the anatomy and then the slow motion evidence, how it should work. And so that's where you start to look at, Hey, the big, the big strong muscles are on the backside outside of the tissue. We could look at the fascia in where it's woven and where it gets thicker and it gets really thick at the lower back in the thoracolumbar fascia. It thickens up again on the outside of the thigh, which is what they call the IT band. There's no real true IT band, but it thickens. And then it even wraps down into the shin compartment, obviously. And if you look at those, like you just Google image musculoskeletal system, the original ankle taping is right there inside of your system. Just look at the white lines. Like the ankles literally taped through this fascia. Now fascia is becoming a, a, you know, a big buzzword, but big picture, everything in that musculoskeletal system, if you look at it from an, an anatomical standpoint of a design that's built to move forward through space, it all points back to there's a certain way that we want to load that thing and transfer that thing, and it's going to propel us forward through space. So we're trying to show people, hey, we're built to move forward. We do have the ability to go into reverse. That would be our lifting engine. So just like the design of a car, the car was designed for what? To go forward through space. That's obvious. But it's nice to have reverse gear. You can back out of the driveway. You can back out of the parking spot. We're designed for forward gear. We're designed for walk, jog, run, throw, swing, strike, cut, juke, jump. But man, it's nice that we can stop, put our feet, our heels in the ground and lift something up off the ground so that we can allocate resources. So we have a lifting capability, but it's not the default operating system. It's not the bias. We're more built for forward movement, but we have the ability to shift into reverse. So we're trying to propose a new blueprint as to how we look at how we examine, assess, and then eventually train the human system. What does it mean to shift into reverse lifting? So if we're talking about forward and reverse gear, to kind of give it a quick 40,000 foot overview, if you're picturing someone moving forward through space, okay, we talk about a tail to crown relationship. We'll find these two points and then you can kind of see how they're relating to each other based off the direction that we're going. So when you look at accelerating forward movement, as the movement gets louder, if you get into that run, you'll notice that the tail is going to move back, the crown of the head is going to move forward. So we're effectively going to kind of pitch the whole system in the direction that we're going, right? Athletic position, like we always used to say, get your butt back, right? Balls of the feet, heels are up. So when we want to go forward through space, the heel's going to lift up. We're going to be inner ankle bone high, as we would say. We'll be on the ball of our foot. We'll be on the ball of our foot. Our tail will be back. Our crown will be forward. That's going to default us towards forward movement. Now, if I want to go into reverse, the basic blueprint for that is centered around what I would say is the lift. You stop in where you're moving. You get static. You've now put your heels into the ground and you do the opposite with the tail and the crown. You start here and now you bring the tail under and you pull the crown back. So you start to actually pitch the whole system in reverse. You would see this, obviously you've seen it in your Olympic lift. You see it in your deadlift. 
you see it in your back squat, right? This action of tail moving forward, crown moving back, heels down into the ground, which is the opposite of going forward, which would be heels up, ball of the foot, tail back, crown forward. Now, we've been able to take the reverse gear and expand it to some sort of, you know, some like little niche markets, if you will. One of those being the high jump. So the high jump is a single leg reverse jump, right? They're literally jumping backwards. You'll notice the tail moves forward, the crown of the head moves back. You'd see that same behavior in a backflip. Tail moves forward, crown of the head moves back, obviously moving backwards. And if I showed you on YouTube, the Guinness Book of World Records, the guy trying to break the fastest, I think it was the fastest backwards mile, you'll see the same thing. He is tilting his tail forward, the crown of his head is back, and he's using a different foot and ankle behavior than what we examine when we move forward through space. <clears throat> so what about when, you know, running, so yeah, when you're running backwards, um, what if somebody would say like, okay, running backwards, running sideways helps mm -hmm. build robustness to the system, you know, with myofascial meridians, whether it be mm -hmm. from Thomas Myers or the other person, um, just laying down fascial stress and strain to the body because stress that exceeds capacity is what leads to injury. So if you do things, you know, running backwards, not a full mile, but like, you know, within your warm up, if you're doing running backwards, if you're doing running sideways, if you're doing care, mm -hmm. preparing the body for those different stressors that occur on the field. And then also when you get to upright running, <clears throat> now you are more vertical. You know, when you do mm -hmm. run horizontally, yeah, you're projecting out 45, ideally, if you're strong enough, you're 45 degrees, but your weaker athletes are 60-ish, but then as you run, you get more and more upright as you hit those high speeds. It's all vertical mm -hmm. force into the ground. You know, it wouldn't be crowned going backwards. So how does maximal velocity running, your fly 10s, your 40s, how is that viewed in the go-to world as well as, you know, karaoke, sideways running, things like mm -hmm. that? Yeah, great question. So the, the first way I would frame this is that that forward gear, that ability to move forward through space is the same thing that you're going to be using when you shift laterally. 